to Things Observed, and this is going to be our second episode discussing the Titanic and the final episode where we discuss the Titanic tragedy, and we are going to talk about some things that we didn't have time to get into in the last episode, and I'll do my best to wrap the subject up, and I am just coming from having an interesting conversation about whether the average horse can pull more weight than the strongest man in the world and whether or not the strongest man in the world or at least the man with the strongest punch could kill a horse with one single punch so i'm coming out of that mental exercise so if you have any leads or super solid facts concerning this uh, you can always DM me on twitter.com at thingobserver, and you can help me, my girlfriend, and her brother put an end to the great horse versus the strongest man debate. 
So if you have any answers as to either one of those questions, if you have for some reason knocked a horse out, killed a horse with one single punch, if you were the strongest man in the world and you were sure that you could be put up against the average stallion and pull more weight, let me know. Get at me at thingobserver on twitter.com. But we're not talking about horses and strong men today. In fact, we are talking about the, t- the Titanic. Ugh, I don't know why I just stumbled like that. But anyways, let's just go ahead and get into it. So in the last episode, we discussed some of the similarities between the Titanic and her sister ship, the Olympic. We discussed the issue of insurance and how heavily insured or not heavily insured the Titanic was. We discussed some of the possible reasons why there would potentially be a switch between the Titanic and her sister ship, the Olympic, mainly being the Olympics collision with the RMS Hawk, the British naval ship that was made to ram into other ships and it caused extensive damage to the Olympic. And so the idea is that the White Star Line, which was owned by J.P. Morgan's International Mercantile Marine Company, would have the ships switched in order to get the insurance payout because since the collision with between the Olympic and the Hawk was with a British naval ship, it was the Admiralty who did the investigation and they found themselves innocent. So anyways, there's a very, very brief synopsis. But if you haven't listened to the last episode and you want to be fully in the know about everything it is that we're talking about, I'd recommend that you check out the last episode before this one or not. Do your own thing. I am not your mommy nor your daddy, and I'm not here to tell you what to do. So anyways, let's go ahead and get into where we left off. And so something to keep in mind, and we talked about this in the last episode, is that when the Titanic set off on her maiden voyage, there was a large British coal strike making the fuel supply short for ships. So despite the lack of work for people like firemen or, you know, the men who tended to the fires in the boiler room and others working on the ship, the Titanic would have trouble finding men to work aboard her. And so after traveling from Belfast, the location of the Harland and Wolf shipyard to Southampton and the Harland and Wolf shipyard, as talked about in the last episode, almost exclusively made ships for the White Star Line. And they would make both the Titanic and the Olympic and the Britannic, these three sister ships, which all were very similar to one another, with the Titanic and the Olympic being the most similar to one another. But most all the firemen who had traveled to Southampton decided to not stay for the trip across the Atlantic right before the Titanic set out, which is kind of where we left off the episode last time, which is a bit of an odd move to say the least, given that the work was uh, that work was not easy to find due to the strike. But there was something about the titanic when i say titanic like that keep in mind it's quotations and we are entertaining the theory that there actually was a switch that went on but you know there was not work to go around necessarily and another thing to 
keep in mind is that passenger ships were not as easy to hitch a ride on during the days of the coal strike, yet there was still a great need for people to get on passenger ships. People, the rich were still wanting to get on passenger ships for fun, and the immigrants were still wanting to go to other countries, and they would use these passenger ships that were sometimes even called immigrant ships. So, one could wonder why any ship, much less the largest and perhaps the most luxurious ship to ever exist, only had 2,222 people aboard when she had a maximum capacity of 3,547 people who could hitch a ride. So it's kind of odd. And that is talking about both passengers and crew. But if we were talking just the passengers, the Titanic was carrying roughly half the passengers she was capable of handling, with the max number of passengers being 2,566, but there were actually only 1,317 actually on board. So is it possible that word had gotten out that the Titanic was actually Olympic, where people kind of freaked out to get on the ship? Did it get people all nervous? Who's to say, but interesting things to think about. So while we are on the subject of coal, in cold bunker number 10 of the ship, a fire was smoldering when it was about to leave Southampton. And that's a big no-no when you're talking about ships. Nobody wants to be on a ship that is going to catch fire out at sea. But instead of this fire being put out, there would actually be 400 tons of coal that was placed on top of it with the full knowledge of the captain and the engineer of the ship. So why would they risk this potential fire at sea? Well, the documentary that was mentioned in our last episode, it's kind of fun, has some problems, talked about some of those problems. I'm not even sure that the footage from the very end of the film is legitimate, like the last scene. If you check it out, you'll know what I'm talking about. But anyhow, um, this documentary that we have mentioned and will be in the show notes along with all the other sources, and I will mention the sources as I go along, but Titanic, The Shocking Truth, which you can find on uh, Tubi, which I don't know if anybody uses Tubi, but if you got it, they've got it. But it is also streaming for free on Amazon Prime, and if you don't have any of those, because say you hate Jeff Bezos, and who could blame you, you're a better person than a lot of people who cannot get away from the ease with which you can order things from Amazon but it is also on YouTube. Just type in Titanic, The Shocking Truth, and you will find it. But they suggest that perhaps this smoldering fire was a plan B, and that if all else failed when trying to sink the ship, that smoke could be allowed to enter the ship, and you tell the passengers that there was a fire aboard the ship in order to get the passengers off. You know, just get them onto the lifeboats. And we're going to talk a little bit in a second about the Californian and the Carpathia, these two ships that were in the vicinity of the Titanic, and we're going to talk about what the actual plan or the potential plan, if we believe the theory of the switch, then this was the plan um, was, you know, did they just plan to kill all these people at sea? What about the captain and the crewmen and, you know, some of these people like the captain who would presumably be on board with a given plan? We're going to get into all of that, so don't worry but I'm not sure about the logistics of this, you know, whole you could let the smoke enter the ship and how 
easy it would be to manage, you know, this fire in the coal bunker or whatever. But it is interesting, and there were efforts to kind of keep this smoldering to a minimum. But another alternative theory to that typically mentioned in mainstream accounts is that the coal fire had weakened the bulkhead and the hull of the ship that made it particularly susceptible to damage when it came into contact with the iceberg. And so some people also believe that, you know, decisions made because of the fire would actually alter the path of the Titanic and put it in the path of the iceberg in the first place. So it's not only in the switch theory, in the switch theory that people make mention of this fire that was going on but the titanic would take off from southampton and then it would make its way to and i might pronounce this sherborg and then to queenstown and when then it would make its way towards the direction of new york so that was the path that the titanic was supposed to make on its maiden voyage with all these passengers on board and while docked in queenstown chief officer wild would post three letters so one of these letters was to his sister ada and it reads i still don't like this ship i have a queer feeling about it which is an interesting statement to make considering he had only been on the ship for three days so there are some other facts that make this statement even more interesting so Three days before the Titanic would set off on its maiden voyage, he would describe how wonderful the ship is. Only three days later to say, you know, that he had a queer feeling about it and that he was getting bad vibes, to put it into the modern day lingo. So he is getting bad vibes. Chief Officer Wild is saying, this is wild. Sorry for the bad pun. So in this letter, he does mention that he believes the ship to be the improvement over the Olympic, but it can only strike me personally as odd that only three days later, you know, his entire tone would change. And one can wonder if he maybe went on to realize that the ship was actually Olympic, the Olympic, which he was familiar with given the fact that he had been the chief officer of the Olympic as well underneath the future captain of the Titanic, Edward J. Smith. So this is not his first time being the chief officer on a big ocean liner and not his first time being the chief officer under Edward J. Smith. So anyways, that is interesting as well. But anyways, I think a lot of people are probably wondering, well, what was the plan? You know, if they're really going to sink this ship intentionally, you know, what is it that they are doing? First of all, why would they take it to where they did? Well, it's 12,600 feet deep where the Titanic would end up sinking. And so at the time, you know, there was not any way for people to travel down that deep. Obviously, any rescue effort of, you know, to retrieve the ship, to pull it out of the water would be doomed to fail, you know. So, I mean, if you didn't want people to go down and investigate the ship, that would be one good reason to take it where they did. But also, what what was the plan as far as the passengers? Why would the captain or anybody else in their right mind go along with this plan? Which we talked about a little bit in the last episode, that Edward J. Smith, the captain of the Titanic, had some problems to say the least in his career you know so you could see how he could be potentially strong armed to going along with a plan of this nature but anyways 
let's talk a little bit about what the plan was for the actual sinking of the ship. I mean, were they planning to just kill the passengers? You know, I mean, is the captain of the Titanic on a suicide mission? Well, not exactly if we are to believe Robin Gardner and some of the other switch theorists who talk about this. Well, what we need to talk about then is the Californian, which was a ship that in today's day and age, and even at the time immediately preceding the Titanic, got a pretty bad rap because they were close to the Titanic and, you know, the official story is, is that they did not respond to the flares that they saw of the ship, that they could see the Titanic from a distance earlier in the night, and they just did not go to rescue them soon enough, and that they have blood on their hands, and that it would actually be the Carpathia that would end up being the ones to come and save the day. But let's take a deeper look into the Californian and see if it was maybe meant to be there that night and maybe if it was actually supposed to be the one it was intended to be the one to rescue those aboard the titanic and the job was ultimately botched so we have already established the full the fuel shortage at this time due to the coal strikes taking place in britain so it is odd that a British steamship, this time the SS Californian, which was commanded by Captain Stanley Lord, left on April 5th, five days before Titanic's departure from Southampton, with no passengers aside from the crew, and fully cold. But it gets even weirder, because what's even more bizarre is, you know, perhaps, you know, you could go, well, what if they were taking some sort of cargo? Well, the only cargo aboard the ship, which is something which just kind of breaks my brain a little bit, was woolen sweaters. I wonder what kind of person would have use for woolen sweaters. Perhaps someone who fell into the cold waters of the Atlantic and was being rescued would have a need for woolen sweaters. But the only cargo aboard the ship was woolen sweaters, you know, so it's not really carrying that much cargo. It doesn't have any passengers aside from the, from the crew, and it's fully cold, cold, and this is a time when coal is hard to come by because of this strike. So already a little bit odd, to say the least. So how does the Californian relate to the sinking of the Titanic? Well, according to the mainstream narrative of the sinking of the Titanic, to have been the only ship to see the ship or the rockets that were fired off during the sinking of the ship, you know, these flares that were sent off in order to, you know, distress flares, trying to call for help. But both the American and the British inquiry of the disaster would claim that the Californian could have saved many lives had she been prompt, pro, uh, properly taken to the flare of the rockets. And the U.S. Senate inquiry would even go a little bit further than that and say that the lack of response by Captain Stanley Lord was reprehensible. So is it possible that there's more to be said about the Californian? You guys already know because of what I said earlier where it is that we are going with it. You know, so is there anything else that is weird aside from it being fully cold during a fuel shortage with no passengers and no cargo aside from wool sweaters? If that wasn't weird enough. Well, one of the first things just right off the bat that we should discuss is that the SS Californian was a ship that was owned by Leyland Lines which as many of you will not be surprised to hear, was owned by who else besides J.P. Morgan and his International Mercantile Marine Company. 
Which, perhaps you could say that is not too suspicious given that Morgan was seeking to monopolize the shipping industry, but it is still worth bringing to everybody's attention. And it is not just that, as we'll see. This is just one of the many anomalies, which we've already pointed out four or five, or not anomalies, but things that are strange or worth taking note of. So the Californian, when it left on April 5th, would leave quickly and make it her way with speed towards Boston. But then she would do something that some find peculiar. She would completely stop in the middle of the ice field and then that night slept, um, the captain, Captain Stanley Lord, would sleep in the chart room of the ship fully clothed. So he would have the ship leave the engine on standby, so that way this could, you know, perhaps he's expecting something to happen. So she, the ship stops in the middle of this ice field, Lord says keep the engines on standby, so I am unsure if this is true, but I have also heard that it was standard protocol for iron steamships, steamships and other ships to go full speed through icebergs during this time, and that there were other ships aside from the Titanic moving about the area at this time. So another thing is that it's just kind of odd that he would decide to stand still in the first place, and perhaps that could indicate that he was expecting something to happen and that he would be needed in that area. But an object large enough to harm a ship, such as the Californian, according to some, should have been large enough to be seen in time to maneuver around it. So, I mean, a lot of this ice is just field ice, which a big ship could easily go through. And anything that would be big enough to pose damage to the ship you would be able to see it in time to get around it. So is it possible that this means that the Californian had reached her destination? Well, let's take a look at the book, The Great Titanic Conspiracy, to learn about the switch theorist account of what exactly happened on the night of Titanic sinking aboard the Californian. The Californian hurried onward until, at about 10.15 p.m., a strange brightness was spotted along the western horizon. Captain Lord guessed that the glow, known as Ice Blink, was caused by field ice. The vessel continued towards the ice for a further five or six minutes before Lord decided that discretion was the better part of valor and ordered the helm hard aport and the engines full astern. The Californian swung towards the east-northeast as she slowed to a stop. Captain Lord then ordered the engine stop, but steam to be kept up throughout the night in case the engines were required urgently. He never explained why he thought the engines might be urgently needed during the night. His ship, ship drifting slowly and safely in the same direction, and at the same speed as the field ice and icebergs, could be in no conceivable danger from them. The captain was obviously aware that the ice presented no threat to his ship because he had had the extra lookouts dismissed and sent below. After taking the ship this, these simple precautions, Captain Lord should have felt himself able to put his trust in his senior watch officers and look forward to a good night's sleep. But sleep seems to have been the last thing on his mind. Captain Lord was about to leave the bridge when he spotted the masthead light of another ship. To the east of the Californian, on her starboard quarter. He pointed out the light to his third officer, Charles Victor Groves. Groves initially thought the light was nothing more than a star and said as much to Captain Lord, but as he later testified at the official inquiries into the sinking of the Titanic, 
he changed his opinion as the night wore on. Before another hour had passed at about 11.25 p.m., Mr. Groves was convinced that what he had first believed to be a star was in fact two masthead lights belonging to a passenger liner. Titanic, although the largest vessel in existence at the time, only ever displayed one masthead light. Two lights were usually displayed by vessels with four or more masts, whereas Titanic only had two. The third officer also believed that he saw the mystery vessel's port side red light. At no time did Mr. Groves mention seeing any of the myriad lights coming from portholes, public rooms, and promenade areas invariably shown by a passenger liner. Captain Lord, still convinced that the lights he had seen were coming from nothing more than a small cargo ship, left the bridge and made his way down to the saloon deck. Once there, he sent for his chief engineer, W.S.A. Mahan. When the engineer arrived, Captain Lord confirmed his instructions that steam should be kept up and the engines ready for an instant use in an emergency throughout the night. He also pointed out to the engineer the lights of the mystery ship to which he had so recently drawn Mr. Grove's attention. It was a perfectly clear, flat, calm night with no moon but with thousands of stars twinkling down. Under these conditions, it was not at all easy to discern the horizon, and Captain Lord had already been fooled into thinking the stars low down on the horizon had been the masthead lights of ships. He wanted the engineer's opinion as to whether the lights they could see were a ship or merely stars. Mahan's opinion was the same as that of his captain, that the lights were those of a small cargo vessel. It was sometimes around 10.45 p.m. when the chief engineers left to continue with his duties. So, not that long before the Titanic would see, sink, we have the people aboard the Californian who are seeing these strange lights, and they believe it to be of a small cargo ship. So, what is it that is going on here? Well, we will end up coming back to these mystery lights and the issue of the mystery ship. And this mystery ship, or, you know, possibly two by some accounts, is something that will factor in not only to switch theories of what happened with the Titanic, but to plenty of other theories. And perhaps at the end of the show, we can real briefly, I can just kind of toss out some other theories opposed to the mainstream idea of what happened with the Titanic, you know, just for those who want to go do more research. Something that I figured out by looking into stuff for this episode and the last episode is that the Titanic, just like everything else I talk about on this show, is something that you can fall down a deep, deep rabbit hole looking into. It kind of seems like all these subjects that I think will just be something that's kind of fun to look into end up being way more complex and having way more information than I ever would have thought going into them. But I guess that's just the nature of looking into things. But anyway, as mentioned earlier, the Californian had set out for its voyage in a hurry. And in fact, the ship had left in such a hurry that Cyril Evans, the wireless operator of the Californian, I wonder if that was annoying. Sorry for the headphone users out there, but this wireless operator of the Californian, he did not even have the time to pick up the Macroni chart for the trip, which would help him to know. A Macroni chart basically just helps people know what ships were in range of his wireless equipment, and he would have to guess because he did not have the chart what ships were in the vicinity by the strength of the signal that he received from them. So at around 10.55 that night, Evans relayed a message to the Titanic that the Californian was stopped and surrounded by ice, even though it seems from various accounts that truly she was stopped at the 
edge of the ice field. But nonetheless, he would say that they were surrounded by icebergs and that they could not move. But, um, but anyhow, and, but, and, you know, um, you know, so she's saying that, uh, he's saying that they are stopped at the edge, um, that they are, you know, stopped because of ice, but they're really at the edge of this ice field. They're not surrounded by icebergs, but instead they are only surrounded by field ice, which I've mentioned earlier that a ship, you know, like the Californian should have no problem going through. And as earlier mentioned, the Californian was without its Macroni chart. And that's why when the ship made contact with the Titanic to relay this message, Evans only got so far as saying we are stopped and surrounded by ice before he would be cut off by the Titanic who responded with keep out shut up you're jamming my signal I'm working Cape Race which is kind of you know something that is a a famous moment in Titanic lore you know just yet another one of those warning signs that seem to have been ignored by the Titanic um, and would lead to the demise of the ship and many of its passengers. But this message should have been taken as a serious ice warning, which should have been taken down and given to the senior officer on the liner's bridge, which seems to have been what Captain Lord intended by the message in the first place. Because a message like this, it would first go through Captain Lord and then be relayed by Evans. So, the Titanic would receive a total of six messages on the night of the sinking, three of which were from the Californian. And these messages were relaying her position in which she was stopped for the night, making the content of the messages much different from the others relaying the location of icebergs in the vicinity. In fact, these messages were addressed to captain smith so what did old eddie smith do well ed smith on that night had taken a peculiar route which just so happened to put him right into the ice field where you would think he'd want to avoid this you know given that he's getting messages not only from the californian but from other ships who are seeing icebergs and you know giving their locations and stuff and this is all after messages relaying the position of these you know icebergs so why is Edward Smith going into the middle of a uh, icy situation? I don't know. I thought I could come up with a pun in time, but I couldn't. But is it possible that, you know, the Californian had been planned in advance to pick up the passengers of the Titanic after an intentional sinking? We've got the virtually cargoless, aside from woolen sweaters, the passenger lift ship that is fully cold and is out in the middle of, you know, the ocean for what reason? Who knows? But one thing that could have gone in the way of a potential plan, assuming that there was one in place, is that Captain Lord's telegraph operator, Cyril Evans, would fall asleep at 1130 that night, which, you know, in some people's account of what happened this is, you know, viewed as, you know, such a horrible thing, like he was literally sleeping on the job, but this was actually not an abnormal time to call it a night for a ship's telegraph operator at this time, but after the sinking of the Titanic, they would make, you know, it 
required uh, laws would be put in place that people had to be you know operating the telegraph system on a ship at all times but at around the time that evans retired for the night the mystery ship that was earlier mentioned had gone so close to the Californian that Captain Lord believed he could see her masthead in some of the deck lights and her green starboard light as well. So this ship, this mystery ship, was approaching from the southeast and Lord believed that she was probably about five miles away and an attempt to contact her through Morse lamp would fail which kind of gives you an idea of how close they thought the ship was that they could even contact it with Morse lamp, but this would fail. And another crewman, Grover, aboard the Californian, would later see this ship stop and uh, the, the ship would turn her lights out, but would not inform Captain Lord. So it's kind of weird of Grover. And when I say Grover, I can only think of the Sesame Street character. So um, it kind of makes this a little bit more of a funny, lighthearted subject if you think of Grover being the Sesame Street character. But so anyhow, was this ship the Titanic as most official counts make it out to be? Or was it some other ship? Once again, we will refer to the Great Titanic Conspiracy. And it's going to start off talking about, you know, calculating distance and, you know, Anyhow, we'll just get into it. There's a simple rule for working out the distance to the horizon from any vantage point at sea. V, distance in miles, the square root of the height and feet of the observer's eyes above the waterline, multiplied by 1.14. Using this simple formula, we can work out that from Californian's Bridge, which was about 49 feet above water, the visible horizon, had there been one that night, would have been about 8 miles away. From Titanic's crow nest, the horizon would have been about 12 miles off. Had Titanic and Californian come within 5 miles of one another, they would have been clearly visible to each other. Although it's painfully apparent that Titanic and California never came within sight of one another that night, one person's incredible evidence was given entirely unwarranted credence by both the British and American inquiries to the point where it has clouded the story of what happened that night for the better part of a century. According to his own count, at about 11.55 p.m., Donkey Man Gill, which is awesome, uh, made his way up onto Californian's deck to smoke a cigarette. There was no smoking allowed between decks because of the combustible nature of the urgent cargo of blankets and pullovers the vessel was carrying, according to Gill. Looking over the starboard rail, Gill saw a very large steamer about 10 miles away. The donkey man never explained quite how he managed to see a ship three or four miles beyond the horizon. Gill watched his steamer, he said, for a full minute. Going back below, he told a mate, William Thomas, who was in bed, that he had seen a steamer going full steam. Thomas later denied that Gill had mentioned a steam or rockets, but said that he had only talked about the ice. Gill was very specific about the time, so the ship he saw was hardly likely to have been the Titanic, which had been in some sort of collision 20 minutes earlier. Unable to sleep, Gil was back on deck at 12.30 a.m. He had been there for about 10 minutes when he noticed a white rocket about 10 miles away on the starboard side. I thought it must be a shooting star. There had been a meteorite shower that night. In 7 or 8 minutes, I saw distinctly a second rocket in the same place. Gil clearly did not think that the rockets were of any great importance and said as much. I do not know if anyone did who saw them, but I did not. It was not my business to notify the bridge or the lookouts. 
Obviously, seeing the rocket set Gil's mind at rest because shortly after seeing the second, he turned in for the remainder of the night. Which, you know, as we can see, there are some holes in the Donkey Man's story. Which, damn, Donkey Man. What a name. I wonder how he got the name Donkey Man Gil. But, um, anyhow, I, I know of a Gil. Not very closely, but my girlfriend and her roommate and stuff, they see Gil a lot. So I'm going to have to start getting them to call him Donkey Man Gil. But, however... Let's let's get into some of the holes in this story. So at 12.05 a.m., the Titanic was most likely stopped and was by no means going full steam. So that, you know, does not fit the description that we are given by the Donkey Man. And the previously mentioned Grover had seen the ship lights go out shortly before at 11.40 p.m. that night. But Gil claims to have seen a fully lit ship. And lastly, he claims to have seen white rockets, but the Titanic did not have white rockets, but it instead had multicolored rockets, which were red, white, and blue. So there are just a few of the major inconsistency in Gill's story used to establish that this ship was the Titanic. So, was this some other ship that was seen by Grover and the like? So, with all of this commotion afoot, the first mate of the California would get the wireless operator and he would begin to attempt to contact the Titanic. But by this time, the Titanic's apparatus was no longer functioning, so it was a little bit too late to say the least. But the operator would hear the word Titanic, which was probably coming from the Carpathia or some other boat in the vicinity, and this would be relayed to the captain. So the California, when it heard that it was probably about 20 miles away, it would go and would pick up the head um, of the ship and would go forward full steam. But it was nonetheless too late because the Californian was a slow ship. And despite the Carpathia being 50 miles away, it was able to make it to the scene of the Titanic quicker. So the following morning, the Californian would learn from the Carpathia that the ship had sunk and that all the survivors had been picked up. So if we are to believe the switch theory, this was a botched job. And this is by no means a full account of what happened. But to summarize and to add a few more facts surrounding what took place on the Californian that night in order to get a better understanding of what its role was, let's just go through some of these some of these facts. So Captain Lord would not sleep in his bed, but stayed where he would be easily accessible to his staff, and he ordered for steam pressure to be maintained so the engines could be kicked on at any moment, which makes it kind of seem as if he was expecting that something may happen. And when he was approached by the formerly mentioned signals from some ship in the area, he asked if the rockets had any color in them, which is something I hadn't shared up until this point. But if they were private signals, means he was, you know, it, he was expecting to see colored signals that night, like the Titanic had. So he was unperturbed by the white signals that he had seen. And also, we know that the Titanic and the Californian had some miscommunication, and that the Californian would end up 20 miles away from the Titanic. So 
could this distance have been a mistake and the two ships were meant to be closer, you know, for a planned rescue if the switch theory is to be true? Well, we do know that the Titanic had miscalculated its coordinates and gave a faulty position during her distress calls. And this was off by as much as 13 miles or a little more. So, I mean, if the Titanic was, when, you know, when it relayed her position, it relayed the wrong position to the Californian. So, it would make sense that this was, you know, a botched job and the Californian could not have gotten there as quickly as was planned. And so, also, events, some of which we have already discussed taking place aboard the bridge of the Californian, suggest that there's a possibility that there was one if not two ships between the Californian and the Titanic. You know, remember the mystery ship, those lights, you know, maybe it was some sort of small cargo ship. Also, this area was known to have poaching ships, and often these poaching ships, they would have people, you know, kind of go out on rafts in order to signal where the ship was so people could come back. They would fire off white flares, and it would make sense if, you know, it's not, you know, open knowledge. You know, they didn't come out and say that they were in the area the night of the Titanic sinking, because, you know, poachers, I mean, that's illegal. They're not doing the right thing. So what event happened that night would involve multicolored lights and the need to move. Um, I'm sorry. What event happened that night that would, you know, involve multicolored lights, the need to move quickly, the need to have the engines on engine on standby? Well, it was taking place 20 miles away out of sight of the fully cold passengerless ship that had as its only cargo wool sweaters. So there's a little bit about the Californian, and if we are to believe people like Robin Gardner about the switch theory, you know, it's it seems like the Californian was intended to pick up the Titanic's passengers, and it was a botched job. So let's talk a little bit about the Carpathia, the ship that would end up being the one who had come to the rescue of those passengers who had been aboard the Titanic, and its captain was Captain Rostron, and he would figure out upon the first distress calls that the Titanic's predicament, of the Titanic's predicament, and after Mr. Boxhall, the Carpathia's navigating officer, calculated the true position of the ship, so he would figure out that the Titanic had given the incorrect coordinates, they would, you know, figure out that the Titanic gave her position wrongly by a distance of 13 or so miles, and Captain Rostron would order his ship to change course. And so here's where it gets a little bit weird. So the Carpathia was 58 miles away from the Titanic, and even moving at its full speed of 17 knots, it would take four hours to find its way to the ship, which by the time it got there had sank, and, you know, there was just basically people in lifeboats. But Captain Rostron seemed to be prepared, and if we were to ask Robin Gardner, Rostron was oddly prepared, so prepared, in fact, that it is almost a little bit conspicuous, and we will go into, you know, how prepared exactly it was that Rostron was. So, once again, we are going to be reading from the Great Titanic Conspiracy, and Gardner says, First, he ordered his wireless operator to check Titanic's position. Then he started to Carpathia's chart room. Captain Rostron quickly worked out that his ship was about 58 miles from the sinking liner and immediately ordered a new course. Carpathia's head swung northward onto north 52 degrees west. All 18 of the lifeboats were swung out ready for immediate launching. Off-duty crew members were woken and all of the crew were given hot drinks ready to stave off the chill night air. 
Orders were given that the crew were to prepare the ship to receive survivors. Barrels of machine oil were to be taken to the lavatories so that it could be easily flushed overboard to calm the sea, if necessary. Then, Captain Rostron sent out for his chief engineer, Johnson, and ordered him to squeeze every ounce of power possible out of the reciprocating engines. All unnecessary steam-powered systems, including the heating to passenger cabins and public rooms, was to be shut down so that all available steam pressure could go to the engines. It appears that Johnson's crew of engineers and Stoker did all that was asked of them and more, performing a minor miracle. Carpathia headed to the rescue at an incredible 17.5 knots, about 25% faster than her designed speed. The whole ship shuddered as she raced to the rescue, so much so that the passengers were awakened by the massive amount of vibration coming from the overworked engines and possibly by the bitter cold that began to creep into their cabins. While some of the crew collected blankets and prepared hot drinks for the survivors, others prepared public rooms as makeshift dormitories and hospitals. Passengers, although under strict instructions to keep out of the way, gave up their accommodation so that the survivors could, would have somewhere to sleep after they were brought aboard. Still, Captain Rostron was issuing orders. Extra lookouts were posted on the bridge, in the crow's nest, and two in the eyes of the ship, right in the bows. All obstructions on deck were cleared and gangway doors in the side of the ship were open and hooked back. Nets and rope ladders were prepared to help the fittest of the survivors scramble aboard Carpathia. Sacks were tied to ropes so that children could be hoisted aboard and bows and chairs were imp improvised to lift those that could not manage the nets and rope ladders. Lights were prepared to hang over the ship's sides. Captain Rostron thought of everything with the possible exception of his own passengers. Could Captain Rostron and the Carpathia really have been far, as far away from the Titanic when the distress call was received as the usually accepted 58 miles? Could the Carpathia really have exceeded her design speed by as much as 25%? Could the captain have picked his way through an area studded with hundreds of giant icebergs at high speed and in total darkness? Is it likely that Captain Rostron could have issued the string of concise and incisive orders detailed above if he had only recently been awoken and was unprepared for what he had to do? The answer to any one of these questions is more likely to be no rather than yes. What are the chances, chances of being able to answer yes to them all? And so... There's just a little bit about the Carpathia. We can get an idea of just how ready that Rostrin was, and perhaps he was just a really good captain, and he knew what was going on. Robin Gardner, you know, obviously takes things to a pretty far uh, conclusion in his works, The Titanic Conspiracy and Titanic, The Ship That Never Sank. And while I find a lot of what he has to say persuasive and interesting, sometimes he can almost go into territory that's a little bit far for even me. Not to say that I don't believe it, but I do think that uh, he is definitely convinced that there was some real funny business going on with all of this. So while there may be nothing sinister about Rostron's preparedness, it is enough to make one scratch their head. And it is also worth noting that Rostron's actions would help his career, which had been hurt because of all things. He had said that he had seen a sea monster earlier in his career. And instead of keeping silent about this, he would actually mention it in the ship's log. And so it would become a matter of public knowledge. And so he kind of had a little bit of damage to his reputation. But any reputational damage that he had received due to this sea monster incident 
fell by the wayside in light of being the man who would lead the Titanic's rescue efforts. So I'm not saying that he's lying when he says that he saw a sea monster. Maybe he did see a sea monster. Maybe he saw Leviathan or something. Who's to say? Maybe he saw some sort of Lovecraftian creature. And But anyways, the Titanic would help out his career by being the one to come and rescue it. And now we'll go to the final little bit of our podcast, and we'll talk about um, what happened after the ship hit the iceberg, what's going on with the survivors, and all of that. And then we will kind of wrap up the show with some concluding stuff. But how can we do a whole two-part series on the Titanic without talking about the actual sinking of the ship itself? So we all know that the most commonly held version of events is that the ship hit an iceberg and, you know, whether you saw the depiction of the events in the James Cameron movie, uh, you you learned it about it in school. I don't know if Titanic's something you learn about in school. Um, Many of you have even probably seen the photo of the iceberg that is the one the Titanic supposedly crashed into, photographed by the chief steward of the German ocean liner, the SS Prinz Aldebert which is purportedly the, you know, iceberg that's a Titanic hit where you can, you know, some say you can see the red paint from the Titanic on it. Of course, the photo, I mean, it was taken on April 15th, you know, the day after the Titanic sank, the, the from the night after the Titanic sank. So, I mean, I, it's possible that you can see the red paint, but, um, you know, supposedly he saw red paint on an iceberg, you know, before he had even learned of the Titanic's fate, so he gave it an old snapshot, but from the image, in my opinion, it's not immediately apparent if what one sees is actually paint that had scraped onto the iceberg, or the shadowing and contours of the iceberg, because this is a black and white image taken with a camera from, you know, the, the, from the time of the sinking of the Titanic, you know, so, it's a uh, no DSLR in full color or you know some anything like that but anyhow to get back to the subject after that you know diatribe about the photo so let's ask some questions about this part of the Titanic story like we have so far with all the other elements and bear with me because Gardner is going to take us into like the Titanic equivalent of like uh, maybe not quite this far but almost like Sandy Hook crisis actor type conspiracy stuff and uh you can always you know learn more about his opinions in his books which i will link to into the show notes before there's no free d free pds for this one which there a lot of the time is for books that i reference so you will have to put up some money unless you've got a friend who can loan you the book or something if you've got a titanic pilled friend but anyhow um so now we'll listen to uh Gardner go into like Wolfgang Halbig territory isn't that the guy who uh would you know get sued by parents of Sandy Hook people um I mean I guess you can go with Alex Jones there's the uh more widely known one but you know we're going into some into some deep territory like 12,600 feet deep type territory so Everyone knows that there was some mischief concerning who got to go aboard the lifeboats. Um, you know, one of the lifeboats took only 12 people, although the boat could carry at least 40 people. Uh, this was supposedly because one of the passengers, if I uh, 
remember correctly, Sir Cosmo, because uh, what a what what a name for a rich guy, Sir Cosmo, presented seven different crewmen with uh, checks that were for five pounds, and uh, there, there's a depiction of this in the James Cameron movie, and they put uh, Rose's uh, fiance and as to be like one of these people who's like trying to bribe people, but anyways, we know there was some funny business going on with the lifeboat situation and you know you can check out Gardner's work for a more thorough breakdown of the lifeboat situation from a switch theorist point of view but let's turn our attention to something that I find pretty interesting about those who survived from the lifeboats and you know this is a little much so bear with me I've already had a few Titanic heads official story heads you know, try to debunk me on on Twitter. I, I knew what I was getting into because as soon as I started researching this, I was like, damn, people get oddly heated over Titanic lore and what have you. So who knows? Perhaps I'm opening myself up to more criticism from Titanic uh, history enthusiasts. But so what, what, what am I referring to about those who survived the lifeboat? Well, those who survived the tragedy, you know, they would have plummeted into water that was 28 degrees Fahrenheit. That's negative 2.2 degrees Celsius for all the Celsius people out there. And so some of the survivors would find themselves swim out to collapsible lifeboat B, which the crew, they tried to fasten it to the davits of the ship. It fell from the roof of the officer's quarters to the deck below before it was washed out to sea. The bottom of the boat was facing up. People would swim out to it, turn it off, get on the lifeboat, and some more people would climb aboard this lifeboat after treading water. Ultimately, about 25 people would be rescued from this lifeboat. And around 44 to 48 people were saved from the water, just in general. And 79 passengers and crew said that they had came into contact with the water at some point. And this is 28 degree water, below freezing. And there are different, you know, uh, people who have done, you know, kind of... Uh, I, I don't even know how it's done, but, you know, calculations, they've ran the schematics or whatever as to around what the temperature would be um, in the air on the night that the Titanic sank. And there is some debate, but I mean, we're talking about temperatures that get close to below freezing. And so Gardner kind of contends that he does not believe that people's stories uh, basically check out as to how long they were in the water, some of these people. Um, and I agree. I mean, I, I don't know if I'm fully on board or not, but it does kind of, you know, uh, stretch belief a little bit. And who knows, maybe some people really did. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not necessarily saying crisis actors and Gardner doesn't even come out and directly say crisis actors, but it does kind of seem like that's almost what he's alluding to. Um, you know, not that when he says the Titanic never sank, he, he does believe that a ship sank. But anyhow, I, I don't know exactly what he thinks if he thought maybe some people were paid off to say they were on the Titanic or to... I, who knows? You would have to ask Gardner that, but I actually think that he's deceased, so um, 
I guess you can try and seance uh, Robin Gardner, although I wouldn't recommend it, even if you get a response. It's probably not Robin Gardner, fellas, but we're not talking about demons in this episode. But um, so, so anyways, I'm going way off topic, but some of these people would manage to spend a shocking amount of time in the water if they're to be believed. One of these is Charles Johan, something like that. Um, uh, uh, I believe he's a German guy. He was the head baker on the Titanic. His last name is spelled J-O-U-G-H-I-N. And he would supposedly tread water for two or more hours before being picked up by a lifeboat and eventually making his way onto the Carpathia. And he supposedly survived, according to this one thing that I read on McGill University's website, because he was heavily inebriated, because according to those who believe you know, this kind of story of events. One, and this is true, a lot of the times when people die, you know, from exposure to super cold water, it isn't necessarily hypothermia, you know, a reduction in their core body temperature that kills them, but it's actually what is called a cold shock, which means that, you know, you get in the water, you start breathing, kind of hyperventilating, and this can make you more likely to suck in water, and, you know, it can also you know, really cause a constriction of your veins, which can lead to cardiac arrest. So, you know, a lot of people who die from exposure to cold water, it is actually not hypothermia, their, you know, core temperature dropping so much as they either die as a result of drowning or from a heart attack. But this is, you know, due to due to the cold shock. Um, and you know, the constriction of blood vessels and all that stuff. So this is just one of the, you know, many accounts that is kind of hard to believe, but the idea is since he was drunk, he didn't wig out when he got into this insanely cold water, but who's to say if that's the truth or not, but still two hours of treading in 28 degree water to get out onto a lifeboat, to be on a lifeboat for a significant period of time. Cause remember it took the Carpathia four hours to get there and he would have been soaking wet. He said something to the effect that um, the top of his head didn't even get that wet. He was supposedly just kind of chilling, I guess, but this is just one of the many accounts that are difficult to believe from people who survived in the water and in fact one man robin gardner does you know not believe these people he would actually state it will be recalled that it was a very cold night with both sea and air temperatures well below freezing it is possible for anyone to have survived for more than a couple of minutes in sea that cold and being wet through they would have been no better off aboard either boat a or b those are the collapsible lifeboats. Therefore, all of these people who supposedly survived that night or in those two collapsible boats must have been lying. The question is why? <laughs> now, while one can survive for, you know, probably more than a couple of minutes, some wouldn't, but it would not be easy to do, to say the very least. I, I need to quit saying to say the very least. And uh, uh, one thing to keep in mind I got all these vocal tics. I think I'm at least getting a little bit better about the uhs. I listened to an episode of uh, my first episode, actually, about Kinsey the other day. And I hate to listen to myself, but I listened to the episode because I went recently on the Probably Cancelled podcast. And the episode of me talking 
with Bridget about Alfred Kinsey is up on the probably canceled podcast Patreon. I don't know if that will be released on the free one or not. But anyways, I listened to my podcast to kind of refresh my mind a a few days before I was to go on. And I realized that I was saying a lot of us and stuff and my speaking skills were definitely not what they have have gone. I've gotten a little bit more comfortable on the mic. MC Luke is getting better at spitting out these parapolitical facts, everybody. But anyhow, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure anyways to get back to the subject at hand that, you know, I, I'm not convinced that people couldn't make it no more than a couple of minutes. But when we're talking hours, it is a little bit difficult to believe. And so a chart that I will link below states that in water below 32 degrees Fahrenheit, you know, zero degrees Celsius, which the water that the people from the Titanic were in was even colder than that. One will lose consciousness in 15 minutes and die anywhere from 30 to 45 minutes with hours being, if not an impossibility, nearly an impossibility. And when it's talking about 10 to 15 minutes, 30 to 45 minutes, I think that this is talking about the upper range, kind of. Like, this is what you're expected, and anything beyond that is, you know, kind of short of you know nothing short of miraculous if even possible but it should be stated again as gardner gardner did that not only was the water freezing but so was the air so this guy christopher mcstay who was an emergency room doctor he was getting interviewed in the scientific american about those people who survived in 41 degree water after this plane crashed into the Hudson, I think they made a Tom Hanks movie about it, I think called Sully or something like that. Perhaps I'm getting my plane crash movies mixed up. Maybe that I referenced the wrong title of one. Maybe that's the Denzel Washington being a dude who likes to party hardy and ends up having a plane disaster. Um, but I, I think it's solely, but I, I know I'm pretty sure that the Tom Hanks movies. But anyways, talking about these people who survived the Hudson crash, he would say that, um, you know, in reference to these people, generally a person can survive in 41 degree Fahrenheit water for 10, 15 or 20 minutes before the muscles get weak. You lose coordination and strength, which happens because the blood moves away from the extremities and toward the center or core of the body and there are things that you can do to give yourself a little bit better of a chance of surviving if you ever find yourself plunged into cold water that you have to unfortunately be in for a little bit uh, go fetal position it'll help keep your core temperature or if you're with the homies when this happens just just hug them you know no homo you can hug your homies if you are in frigid waters and are stranded and are waiting for help so just hug your homeboys in that situation it's nice and it'll feel better than just hanging out by yourself in the water anyhow i need to quit being the jokester but even temperatures of water as high as like 75 to 80 degrees can suppose a you know, a small, but a still a risk of hypothermia. And the water we are discussing is much colder than that. And even colder than the water of those Hudson survivors. And they're not, you know, those who got aboard the lifeboats, it still wasn't as nice as, uh, you know, 
it is in the room that I'm here sitting in now. Um, or even if I were to go outside all wet, which I don't plan on doing because it is February and it still wouldn't feel all too cozy. I mean, you're talking about, you know, getting out of freezing water to be in freezing air. And if not freezing air, at least very cold for someone who is got all their clothing and their body covered in 28 degree ice water. I mean, these people had to be practically ice cubes. Um, anyhow, we could say much more, whether that be about the inquiries or how Gardner thinks that the mystery ship mentioned earlier could have been a poaching vessel. And that's what the Titanic actually hit, that this you know poaching vessel is the one that was the iceberg. Or I mean, many of the passengers and crew members did not even feel a crash or impact of any kind as they testified in the Senate inquiry panel. But some did testify to hearing explosions after the supposed iceberg collision. Um, there's, I, I don't put a whole lot of stock in this theory, but it is interesting. There's actually a Huffington Post of all places um, who published an article where this guy's theorizing that there could, that these explosions could have been the result from a German U-boat, and that this was the mystery ship that was seen on that night. Um, Robert Ballard, the man who led the underwater team who would discover the Titanic crash, and you know you can see some footage of that, he would say that the ship had no 300-foot iceberg gash, as had been believed. Um, indeed, the Titanic is a subject that one could lose their self in for a long time. Um, perhaps it was thermite that uh, brought down the world trade. I mean, the Titanic. I mean, why am I trying to make jokes? Um, but anyways, you know, the Titanic is a subject that one could lose their self in for a long time, if not a lifetime, my friends. And perhaps we don't know quite as much as what we've been led to believe. That's kind of my conclusion from this research. I definitely find the switch theory interesting. And in many ways, I even lean towards the switch theory. I definitely think it's plausible. And I think that some of the people who make it out to be you know, the dumbest, most ludicrous thing in the world, maybe need to check themselves just a little bit. Not that I am entirely convinced and not that it is, you know, a proven fact or anything. I think that there are a lot of things that I've talked about on this show or that I maybe haven't talked about on this show. You know, I mean, I think that when we're talking about 9-11 being an inside job, we're talking about the Murrah building bombing, we're talking about the anthrax attacks, we're talking about, you know... Uh, COVID being a possible biological leak or bioweapon. I mean, I think that there's things that have a lot more rock solid of a case and that I believe that if you were to be in a court that wasn't rigged, you could prove in a court of law. Not that I'm going to hold my breath and expect any of that to happen. But, you know, I'm not 100% convinced of the switch theory, but I do think that it is interesting and at looking at some of these different perspectives, whether it be that the coal in Bunker 10 is, you know, and the, you know, that's what caused the Titanic to sink, or, you know, whether it's uh, as far out there as a German U boat, or, you know, Gardner's idea that perhaps one, a poaching vessel or some other smaller cargo vessel or something had rammed into the Titanic. Um, I mean, I think that these are, you know, potential possibilities um you know i i don't think that there's quite as much about the titanic that we know as people would like to make it out to seem and that's kind of my conclusion about this research however 
I will end off this series with one last fun fact for you guys, something that I thought was uh, very interesting to say the least about a ship that no one could foresee sinking except for maybe the author Morgan Robertson. You know, so uh, a lot of people say that, you know, the Titanic, uh, they, they think that people were saying back at the time, the Titanic is unsinkable. Um, maybe the most annoying line in all of the Titanic movie, which I just rewatched not too long ago before doing this series to to refresh my mind on it. I don't even know if I had actually ever seen the movie all the way through prior to this. But uh, when Rose's fiance goes, not even God himself could sink this ship. It's like that that line pissed me off. But anyhow, um, you know, it wasn't advertised as the Titanic wasn't advertised as being unsinkable or or anything like that. But people did think that this was a sturdy ship and that there was basically no threats to it, even though it wasn't exactly worded as unsinkable. But, you know, uh, I mean, what's it? Uh, was it Rumsfeld who was talking about the unthinkable i can't even remember the quote it's it's so ridiculous or whatever but i mean just kind of like things with 9-11 how no one could foresee a plane crashing into buildings except they had multiple times um you know there is an example um of something i mean this is actually more a quinn to the um edgar Allan poe uh predicting the future thing about um yet another prediction of a like ship crash if i remember um correctly that he would um you know predict um a a ship crashing and like uh, I, I can't even remember exactly i think he like literally got the names of people um right in this supposed ship crash that resulted in cannibalism in a short story that he wrote i mean this is one of those things that is kind of truly uncanny but Ro morgan robertson would write this book called the wreck of the titan the wreck of the titan sorry or futility and this is just pretty crazy I'll, i'm reading from wikipedia the supreme <laughs> resource so um, it says although the novel was written before the rms titanic was even conceptualized there are some uncanny similarities between the fictional and real life versions like the titanic the fictional ship sank after wrecking on an iceberg in April in the North Atlantic, and there was not enough light boats, lifeboats for all the passengers. There are also similarities in size, 800 feet long for the Titan versus 882 feet long for the Titanic, speed, and life-saving equipment. After the Titanic sinking, some people credited Robertson with precognition and clairvoyance, which he denied. Scholars attribute the similarities to Robertson's extensive knowledge of shipbuilding and maritime trends. But anyways, I guess we've got like Titanic predictive programming going on. And now the last thing that I'll mention before I just kind of wrap this show up is a listener of this show who is Jay Everett, who is the editor-in-chief and the publisher of Apocalypse Confidential, which is a pretty good uh, webzine or something like that. I don't know if that's the proper title. Sorry, Jay Everett, if you are listening to this and I'm butchering it. But I read some of the things on the website, and I've been enjoying it. And he wrote an entry called The Wreck of the Titan, which I thought was very interesting. And I think that um, many people who listen to this will love what is out there on Apocalypse Confidential. And I think that they'll enjoy this article that he wrote, or not article necessarily, but this 
poetic little piece of writing. It's just probably a page long about the Titanic and, you know, relays it to some other interesting stuff. So I suggest that everybody check out this article by uh, Jay Everett, The Wreck of the Titanic or The Wreck of the Titan on Apocalypse Confidential. And check the website out in general. Thanks to Jay Everett for reaching out to me. If you want to reach out to me, you can say whatever you want, no matter how nice, silly, or mean. You can contact me at Twitter, on Twitter, at ThingObserver. And yeah, message me whatever you want. If you enjoyed this episode of the show, if you enjoyed other episodes of the show, I encourage you guys all to give it a rating on Spotify or Apple or whatever podcast platform you're listening on if they have the rating option. I appreciate that as always. Also, send it to a friend or to a family member who you think may find this show interesting. If, you know, there's a certain episode that you think they'd be interested, send it on over. But anyhow, this is the Titanic series. We are done. Just a two-parter for this one. We're going to get into some Really interesting stuff in the show here shortly. So stay tuned for that. We're going to have a lot of good stuff. And I hope everybody is doing well. I love you all. And I'll talk to all of you soon.
sad when that great ship went down. Sad when that great ship went down. That cold ocean. Cold 